Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we would like to take a moment and thank our ecosystem partners for their support, namely Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. Mark your calendars for July 21st, as we will be hosting another free symposium in the ecosystem, this time on the molecular and structural insights of GPCR activation. Our program includes talks from Katerina Nemec, Alexei Serbo, and Polina Isankin. We're taking you on a structural and molecular journey to understand GPCR activation better. If you'd like to give a talk, we are still constructing the program, so please reach out by email at hello at drgpcr.com. We also set aside two hours for poster presentations and networking on a new space called Kumo Space for this symposium. There is no limit on the number of posters we can accommodate, and everyone is welcome to present a poster at our upcoming events, including the one on July 21st. We will not be selecting posters. You will not have to send in any posters. We only ask you to fill out the poster form so that we can capture your information. Part of that information is a one-minute video abstract that we will share on YouTube. We'll also share it on our website so that people can see what you will be presenting about. You can also join us live for any of our events by make, marking your calendar and becoming a Dr. GPCR Ecosystem free site member. For more information and an updated schedule, you can go into the ecosystem. If you haven't noticed yet, we've added menu buttons at the top of our page for your convenience to help you navigate the ecosystem more effectively. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I'm excited to have with me Dr. David Sykes. David, so exciting to have you on with me today. Thank you very much. Yeah, you mean it for inviting me. Thank you so much for, for being here. I'm very excited to, to hear about your story, about what you've been doing. We, we talked about it a little bit before we hit record. So why don't we start at the beginning? Would you please introduce yourself? So, yeah, I'm David, uh, Dr. David Sykes. So I, I um, I'm a Roche postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Nottingham. Um, I'm studying uh, cannabinoid receptors as part of that postdoctoral research fellowship, uh, specifically looking at uh, biosignaling. So, yeah, I mean, my my background is in GPCRs. I've, I've worked on them for over thirty years. Um, I started my career. Um, uh, as a pharmacologist at the James Black Foundation in South London. Um, and yeah, I was trained there um, initially in sort of radioligand binding assays. So the first GPCRs really that I, I, I experienced were the gastrin receptors, so CCKB and CCKA. So at the time, uh, Sir James Black was very much interested in um, trying to discover uh, blockers of CCKB receptors. So he was looking as almost like a follow-up to uh, obviously the H2 antagonists and cimetidine. Uh, and so that was really my, my first experience of, of working on GPCRs. And yeah, that, that experience obviously is, is 
was obviously instrumental really in in in, in me um, really get, getting to like this, this field as a whole. And, and and obviously, once you've started working with GPCRs, you never stop working with GPCRs. I don't think. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist? So, I mean, when I was young, um, I think my mum always thought that I would become a scientist. So she would find me in the kitchen, sort of mix, mixing up certain potions in the, in the <laughs> kitchen. And I think she she had an idea that I might become a chemist, I think. But um, obviously I was quite drawn towards the pharmacology side. So I remember sitting down when I was much younger and looking through like a university prospectus and just looking through the various courses that you could you could choose. And I was particularly drawn towards the pharmacology. So it just seemed quite exciting. Obviously the study of drugs, obviously we're all, we all take drugs at some time or another. And that just seemed, you know, it seemed like a, a really interesting sort of career to pursue. So that's really um, why, why I chose it as a, an undergraduate degree. So I studied pharmacology at the University of Leeds in, in uh, Yorkshire in North England. And, and I'm actually a Lancastrian, so I'm from Manchester, but my name Sykes is actually a Yorkshire name. So I have some roots up in Yorkshire. So it didn't seem too, too far to really just cross over the Pennines there. And, and I, I really enjoyed my time up there. Um, taught by some wonderful pharmacologists actually so uh, professor ian hughes uh, who's was quite a famous sort of pharmacologist uh, of the early 90s and a fellow at the uh, uh, british pharmacological society and they were quite inspirational characters up there the lecturers they they, they made the courses really fun and um, and really enjoyable and and yeah i i, I didn't really I had a choice. I was doing like a joint degree at the time. I was doing a combined uh, physiology and pharmacology. And yeah, I, I, I decided in the end to go for the straight pharmacology, even though I was probably better at the physiology side of things. But it just, yeah, I was just thought that the pharmacology had a, had a more, um, in terms of a career, it seemed a, a more sort of tangible route, really. So that's that's really why I decided to go that that direction. Why why the joint degree? Where where did the interest into physiology come from? So, I mean, I, I'm quite I was quite strong at biology when I was uh, doing my sort of A levels, and so I found physiology quite easy, relatively. You know, in terms of the, the, the learning and the understanding. So I, I, yeah, pharmacology, I found quite difficult relatively. And it was, but it, it just was more, more an interesting subject to me. So I, I decided to, yeah, to, to take that route rather. I couldn't really see what job you would do with physiology, but I mean, obviously, I'm sure there are plenty of jobs in that area. But it just it just seemed more exciting the pharmacology side. So um, yeah, I decided to 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 pick that topic. When when was the first time you you went and worked in a lab and realized actually I love the lab? Obviously, the kitchen, your mom's kitchen, was <laughs> potentially the first one. But the that there's there's a difference between you know being in a classroom and learning pharmacology from a textbook. 
and actually witnessing its effects uh, in the lab. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of pharmacology, we had some, I would say we had some yeah, quite traumatic experience actually. Some of, some of the initial, I mean, some of the experiments that we used to do up there were, were they were quite they were quite interesting. So we we would I can remember one experiment they were looking at like the LD fifty of a of a, a, a drug on um, I've forgotten what the name of the organism is now, but it it really I don't know it's almost like a it was a, it was a really fast moving organism that moved through water, and it was like I don't know if it's a, like a water flea or something. But we we gave them um, a certain drug. I can't remember what it was now. But then they, these things moved extremely fast. Then at that point, and then eventually they died. And um, yeah, I just remember being fascinated by the effects that this drug had had on on that population and. Um, and, and yeah, we had, there's obviously animal experiments going on as well. And, you know, seeing for the first time, the, you know, realizing j just how serious it can be. And, you know, the, the, the responsibility you really have as a pharmacologist, um, if you're working on with animals or with tissues. So, yeah. you know, it, it really sort of woke you up at that point and that, you know, this is quite a serious um, topic. And, and yet very fascinating. Over the weekend, we had to to make a trip to the emergency room with my oldest. He had a stomach bug and he couldn't eat for, I think, almost three days. And the beauty of it all, if, if you can say, is that we, we get to the, to the doctors and they give him a small little pill to put under his tongue. And it's an ion channel antagonist because I had to look it up there. And minutes later, the child is better. And I yeah. told myself, wow, it's not a GPCR, but amazing how fast these drugs can act. Yeah, can act. And, and, and uh, again, I, one of the first drugs that I can remember having to be prescribed was actually cimetidine. So I think I've been enjoying my undergraduate degree <laughs> a bit too much up in Leeds and <laughs> probably drinking too much. And then I got back, back home over the summer. Mm -hmm. And I had to find myself developing some sort of ulcer. <laughs> so I'd actually taken um, cimetidine as part of my treatment. And again, that is another wonder drug. It just works instantly and immediately you, you get better. So like then I, this was before I joined the James Black Foundation. So obviously I had something to thank Sir James for when I arrived there. <laughs> that you actually invented this sort of miraculous cure. Um and, and yeah, it's interesting. He was actually because he he was a, originally a doctor himself. So um, yeah, when I when I was up there, I, if, if I did have any complaints, like I'd often go and sit in his office, and he could probably diagnose you and tell you what's wrong with you. Wow. <laughs> so how did you get into the Black Foundation? How did you so, navigate yeah, that? Yeah, no, it's quite it's quite lucky, really. I I am. Um, so my first experience of working in a lab was actually, the proper experience was during the summer placements. Um, so I'd been working um, up at um, uh, the clinical oncology and radiotherapeutics unit in Cambridge. And my sister used to work there and that's how I actually got my first job 
there. So she'd recommended that I come up there for the summer. So I, I had a student placement up there for a couple of a couple of uh, summers uh, while I was doing my degree. And then once I'd finished my degree, I applied for a job at Pfizer, um, and I didn't get that job. And I'd also applied for this job at the James uh, Black Foundation. So I was delighted to get an interview. And I actually, I had to travel up from Manchester a couple of times for two interviews. And then I thought I was going to have to go up there again for a third interview. <laughs> but by the time I actually got there on this third interview, the first thing they did was offer me the job as soon as I got in, which was quite nice. I was, <laughs> but by this point, you know, I was, yeah, it was, it was, I was obviously, yeah, it was quite a, yeah, it was quite a, a sort of a, a strain to have to go up there twice thinking, God, well, that, do I really have to go through a third interview? But um, yeah, so that, that worked out quite well, really. And yeah, I mean, I, 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 I then, um, once I'd got that position, as I say, um, I think I got it on like a three to two. So I think there, there was yeah some debate whether or not they chose someone who had slightly more experience, but they decided to go for me in the end. And yeah, I was obviously great, very grateful to my first boss there. So that was Dr. Uh, Elaine Harper. So she was the first person who trained me in sort of techniques of radial ligand binding. So that's obviously something that I've continued throughout my career, really. I've been working with radial ligands, uh, looking at the kinetics of binding, really, of drugs to receptors, to GPCRs. And, yeah, that was a really good experience. And I moved sort of around the foundation side. I started off in the radial ligand binding, but then I moved over to the organ baths to, uh, to really do sort of some functional pharmacology. And I was working there with a, uh, another good scientist, uh, Dr. Gillian Watt, who's uh, now quite a senior member of Pharmaron. And yeah, again, I learned a lot from her. She was sort of an expert in uh, organ bath experiments, very good at understanding the maths behind the pharmacology. So I learned all about the equations um, and that really stood me in good stead. And yeah, I then did a master's while I was there. So the head of pharmacology there was a guy called uh, Nigel Shankly, and he'd actually been involved in setting up the original uh, operational uh, model of pharmacology with uh, Paul Leff. And uh, well, I remember one day in his in his office, we were just sort of talking about careers. I said to him, you know, I feel, you know, a bit like a jack of all trades, master of none at this point, because I was still quite a relatively young scientist there and I kind of moved around a lot and studying a lot of different things. So he said, oh, OK, he said, master of none. So he said, well, why don't you do a part time master's then? And he said, yeah, so I, I, I was obviously delighted, but he said, yeah, on the condition that um, we'll, we'll only pay for it if you pass it. So, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was obviously a little bit of pressure then for me to, to make sure that I passed this master's. But that was a really good experience. So I had half a day off for a week, uh, which I traveled to King's College in London uh, to study for my master's. So I did a master's in molecular biology and biochemistry and um yeah i then transitioned then from the, the um 
sort of the organ bath experiments into a, a new lab that was being set up in the foundation. So we recruited a lady called Carol Austin, who's now at Eurofins, and she really taught me all about um, diff different types of cell culture. And obviously, um, uh, I learned some new skills in uh, molecular biology at that point. And that was really my first uh, taste of doing sort of cell, ba um, cell based uh, and plate based assays as well. So we ran, I remember running sort of psychic MP assays in that lab. And I think we were one of the first groups to sort of beta test the Lance uh, psychic MP assays from mm -hmm. uh, Perkin Elmer. Um, so that was a really fantastic experience. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's been one of the keys to my career really is to maybe keep hopping around within pharmacology and, and really uh, getting a taste for, for different techniques. And that's yeah. something that I've carried on now as well. So after I did, I did my PhD uh, with Stephen Charlton at Nottingham, so this is only quite recently. So I would, although I've been a pharmacologist for probably over 20 years at that point, I then decided after Novartis had closed down to, and I joined Nottingham, I decided to do a part-time PhD. And, um, and again, in terms of um, trying to learn new techniques, one of the things that we decided to do was to try and get away from radioligands. So obviously I've, I've I've been sort of um, profiling lots of different compounds to study their kinetics using radioligands in the past, but we decided or made a choice to to actually move away from them and and then start looking at fluorescent ligands and these new techniques of FRET and BRET. Yeah. And so, as part of that PhD, I developed um, a FRET-based kinetics uh, competition assay, and we were profiling then. Initially, initially, we sort of had it as just a, a test case. We thought we thought this would just be a control set of antipsychotics where we would reproduce the literature and uh, show that there was this relationship between the off rates of these ligands and extra peripheral side effects. But actually, it turned out more interesting than that. So we profiled these compounds using these fluorescent traces. And what we discovered actually, there wasn't really a relationship between the off rates of these antipsychotics, but um, it was more the on rates that were driving the, the extrapyramidal side effects. So Stephen Charlton um, has been working with a very another famous Belgian pharmacologist, George Verquellen. So he, he's obviously quite famous for studying kinetics and the hemi-equilibrium uh, um, of antagonist binding. And he's also developed uh, a number of models, including this rebinding model to, to better describe the actions of drugs binding to receptors um, um, in sort of non-stirred conditions. So where you've got, um, and, and yeah, this, this model that they developed, it became quite apparent that actually um, it was probably more the on rates of these antipsychotics that were driving these extra peripheral side effects. And, and so we, we sort of expanded this rebinding theory. Um, and that was probably one of the most sort of the, the satisfying point of the, the PhD in many ways and sort of the high point. But I did go on and study again, develop, developing 
more of these um, FRET-based assays using different fluorescent ligands, this time for 5-HT2A uh, receptors as well. And again, that's, that's led to some interesting discoveries around um, some of the antagonists. So cetindolol turned out to be a very slowly dissociating ligand at that receptor, and that's something, again, that wasn't known at that point. So I think that's something about kinetics, which is always quite interesting, is that if you profile a series of ligands, you will always find something interesting that helps you sort of understand the mode of action of those compounds. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've got to say, in terms of, like, I spent probably the first twenty years of my career just measuring the affinities of compounds for receptors. But it's once you realise that drugs can have identical affinities but very different kinetics that you realise that actually we should be trying to always trying to measure the kinetics of those compounds. If you can measure the affinity then there's a good chance that you can probably measure the kinetics. So it just requires a little bit more effort, but ultimately it's always proved a worthwhile exercise. And we, we've learned so much about the clinical compounds that we've been developing. So I've been very lucky enough to, to work on a number of clinical com, uh, compounds while I was at Novartis. So we developed a CRTH2 antagonist. So, and again, we didn't know why this compound um, was better than our original compounds mm -hmm. until we started to study the kinetics of that compound. And it became apparent again that this compound had a much slower dissociation rate. So that was actually one of my jobs at Novartis was to profile our compounds versus competitor compounds. And so we were essentially always making stories around the kinetics of these compounds uh, to help help promote them really um and yeah i, I looked at um glycopyrrolate which was one of our compounds to treat copd and again that's got quite a slow off rate uh, relative to compounds like teotropium uh, which were more established uh, for treatment of copd but that compound again you, you find that that compound is a very slow off rate which means that it actually it's got a, a, a slower on rate so there's always there's always, I mean, I know it's a spin, but it's kind of, there is always um, something to tell about your drug if you can understand those properties. And it helps you really explain better uh, why your compound might have some, some advantages over another compound. And then having the tools to be able to measure these is, is absolutely crucial because as you mentioned, if, if you can't measure, if you can only measure affinity, that's great, but that's definitely not enough. And I think maybe maybe it's just me, but the thought of, I would have never guessed or made an educated guess to think about the on rate being the one responsible for the side effects. I would have said, oh, maybe it's the off rate, which is yeah. a super interesting finding. I mean, I think this this will prove to be um, quite pivotal in terms of you 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 will see this more often. I think that now on rate will become more important. So it's very clear. I mean, it, it, I, I started to look at like uh, data on um, from PET imaging. Mm -hmm. So if you if you look at that data, you you see that these drugs when when they're administered, they they're lasting for over 24 hours in the brain, many of them. And it, again, this 
this rebinding effect, I think, is what's driving the duration of action of those compounds in the brain. And it can lead to some quite interesting effects in terms of the selectivity of those compounds um, at different receptors. So if, if you're, if, if one of the receptors that you're targeting, um, if that drug has a much uh, faster on rate, then the duration of its effect on that receptor is, is going to be potentially much longer due to this rebinding uh, phenomenon. And it's really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm sure um, that we'll see advances in uh, the treatment of some of these CNS diseases uh, once people start to really try and optimize maybe the on rates of these compounds as opposed to the off rate. Let, let's take a small step back. You mentioned Novartis. How did you get into Novartis and what made you go from academia to industry and then back to academia yeah i mean so um when when the founder it became clear so sir james retired and um and it wasn't long after then that uh, they they basically pulled the funding so the, the foundation was funded by johnson and johnson <laughs> so we spent a very long time working on gastric receptors i mean a phenomenal amount of time <laughs> which I guess nowadays you just wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. You would have always had multiple projects running at the same time, but we had a single project essentially that ran probably for over 10 years. But we, we had, um, we did start to look at other receptors. So we, we started to look at the H4 receptor and which wasn't cloned at the time. So we, we were actually working in the wrong system. We were actually studying uh, histamine receptors, but, yeah, we, we so we had another we had another program on PTH receptors as well, which which produced some interesting results. But again, we just couldn't find any other clinical sort of molecules, and I think that's why we lost the funding. So once that was lost, I then started to think about well, where what what should I be doing really? Should I just hang around and wait for the redundancy package, which would have been probably quite good? But I thought I, I just I hated the idea of seeing the foundation uh, just close around me. So I I, I made this uh, this step that I, I was gonna I was gonna move basically because I just didn't want to see that happen because I thought it would just be really sad to just see it close. So I. I started looking around for jobs um, and one of my, my friends actually uh, that I, I used to sit next to at the foundation, uh, Dr. Elliot Lilly, he'd already made his way down to Novartis in Horsham. So I, again, I was quite, I'd, I'd obviously heard he was having a good time down there. So I, when I saw a job come up, I applied for that position. And yeah, I was interviewed by um, Mark Dowling and Stephen Charlton, who obviously um, had, had published their paper in the BJP on the, the binding kinetics of the muscarinic antagonists. So Mark was obviously very much involved in setting up those kinetic assays. And I was just really inspired at the interview, just speaking to them and just having read the paper on the way up to the interview as well, I was like, just found it fascinating, really. I, I, I was almost like, wow, you know, we, I've been measuring affinities for this long one, really. It doesn't really mean very much. I mean, it tells you obviously about effective concentration, but 
it just doesn't tell you about how the drugs are working really so once I got there and my job was actually um, initially described as as being looking into the mode of action of compounds uh, binding to GPCR so and, and trying to yeah really understand the the clinical mode of action of the some of the compounds that they had in development so I looked at uh, beta 2 agonists, muscarinic um, antagonists, and also uh, the CRTH2 antagonists while I was there. And that that was, I felt quite in a privileged position at that point, although I, eventually I did, they did get me working on just the, the normal sort of drug discovery programs. And I was screening and developing assays, yeah. um, just like everyone else there. I mean, Stephen's got, he's got very much an academic sort of bent towards obviously do your job but if you have some spare time then let's look at something more interesting as well so um, I moved to Nottingham with another uh, scientist uh, Dr uh, Liz Rosethorn who's at Signature now but she produced a very interesting paper on uh, bias ligands and bias signaling at the H4 receptor while she was at Novartis so it was that was a completely I mean, I don't think that we didn't have a H4 program running, but she was profiling some of the ligands, um, uh, looking at new technologies, and they just came across this interesting finding, and they they just kept kept pursuing it, and eventually uh, they produced a really nice paper in molecular pharmacology, which I'd recommend everybody read actually on the bias signaling of this J and J and molecule. So that's a real, that's what I would call like a real bias molecule. So it has, it has beta arrest in um, signaling, but it has no uh, G protein signaling. So I think that's one of the, the rarer molecules really. And that's a, a fascinating paper. And yeah, we, we tried to do a little bit more work on that when we arrived here as well. So I've just read an interesting article by uh, Bob Lefkowitz talking about um, in nature about how Septurner are setting up these screening assays, mm -hmm. looking at the effect of proteins and trying to really understand um, um, how drugs are binding in the presence of these different effectors. And that's something we were interested in too, because we we kind of, realize that probably this bias signaling it, it obviously is something very strongly to do with the the binding of the arresting um, and the confirmation of the receptor um, in the presence of the of arresting so we we, we tried to set up uh, sort of confirmation screening assays um, using um, using some of the techniques that have been developed in Nottingham and I'm also currently in, in my new position I'm pursuing this idea of sort of precision pharmacology, if you like, and actually trying to, um, again, engineer systems so that we've got G proteins arresting. And we're, we're, we've just had Carsten Hoffman down here, actually, who's been talking to us about GRKs, and that's mm -hmm. sort of stimulated a few new ideas, because obviously people talk a lot about arresting, but maybe less is, bit, less is known really about the preceding steps and, and GRKs. And I think, you know, that this 
yeah, this idea maybe that you can have more precision pharmacology in the presence of effector proteins, because all all the radio ligand binding assays that we've we run, that we always try and drop the receptor into this sort of a ground state, don't we? With that, and remove the effector protein. Yeah. So I think um, I think that's really going to be an, an an interesting sort of avenue of research moving forward for drug discovery. Um, he also picked up on sort of al allosteric modulators as well as being another um, sort of area maybe where we'd see an increase in the number of drugs. I did work on an allosteric modulator project actually when I was at um, Novartis and that proved actually quite difficult. So I think that some of the, the sort of the properties that, that make them unique, so obviously these ligands, they, they did bind uniquely to the human receptor and obviously, yeah, if once you start moving to other species, it's then very difficult to then see these effects in those other species, which then makes development, I'd say, quite tricky. So, yeah. so there's a lot, there's a lot to think about. So very interesting art clashing. Yeah. How interesting. It's and it's funny because I was playing around and testing Chat GPT and I did ask it what was the top three advancements in the GPCR field in the five, last five and 10 years. And functional selectivity was number two. Number one was cryo-EM. And I can't remember if it was the five or 10 year mark, but it was protein complexes, signaling complexes. Yeah. And I thought yeah. it was pretty accurate uh, of a description when, when I went over that. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's going to be fascinating. I mean, I, that was supposed to be my PhD originally was to um, try and connect the effect of proteins. And I did do a little bit. So on H4, we did find some, some interesting, actually, we haven't published this yet, but um, what we found was those bias ligands from the J and J, uh, they, when you, when you, um, when you connect the arresting protein to the receptor, mm -hmm. the off rates of the ligands of the bias ligands, those are the ones that changed the most. So it does appear like there might be um, some link there between effector protein binding and the, and the confirmation then that these ligands were recognizing. So, yeah, I, I guess it, I mean, it was always interesting. You could always, you could always see a little bit of uh, G protein binding in your binding assays if you leave the salts out and if you, if you, uh, yeah, if you if, if if you tailor the assay that way, yeah. uh, but obviously to get um, complete effector binding is is not possible in just a standard membrane preparation. But we we uh, the lab that I'm working in is so uh, with Dimitri Vafrinsev. I mean, it's very interesting. He, he's obviously a fantastic structural biologist. He can purify sort of any protein. Um, and that's what I've I've been doing more recently. So I've been learning to solubilize GPCRs. We set we've set up a number of interesting techniques actually just over the three three or more years that I've been here, and um, we, we've been working on uh, a, a technique called thermobret. So this is something that we've just published on in bioarchives, and something that well the full paper should come out soon, but. This is using, this was developed by actually a postdoc um, who visited from uh, Australia and who's gone, who now gone back to the, uh, the Flora Institute. Very talented guy, Brad Hoare. And he developed 
this uh, idea of tagging the receptors with um, a thermostabilized nanolook, essentially, which doesn't unfold as you increase the temperature. And then in the presence of ligands, you can obviously stabilize these receptors and observe a change in the TM of the receptor. And so you can then start, yeah, essentially uh, using that as a tool to, to pull out um, binders for your receptors. And that was, that's been quite an interesting technique to, to, to work on. And more recently, we've been looking at trying to develop sort of membrane-based biosensors. So we've been using the, the GI case system from, um, um, so from Gunnar Schultz lab. And mm -hmm. we've, we've basically, again, been able to uh, prepare membranes from that system and, and then um, observe, yeah, decoupling of uh, the G protein in the presence of various agonists or, or see it um, an increase in the Brett signal in the presence of inverse agonists. So it's quite a high throughput technique now. You can put these membranes in the freezer. You can profile, you know, hundreds of ligands if you, if you, if you need to. We've been able to do that for GI receptors, but GS proved a little bit more tricky, but that's something that I'm sort of involved in at the moment and that we'll pursue. So we had a very talented uh, master's student, Morgan Scott Dennis. She's actually just written uh, a paper on this that will be published in, um, hopefully published in uh, one of the, the frontier journals. Mm -hmm. Wow, you, you're keeping very busy. You mentioned uh, cannabinoid receptors in the beginning in the beginning of the conversation, and I do ask this from everyone. What is your favorite GPCR? Um, so, I mean, obviously, the, I'd have to say at the moment, it is probably the cannabinoid receptor. Uh, I mean, I mean, might say I'd say I have a number of favorites. I'd say the beta two receptor is obviously standard favorite. I've used that many times as a sort of a control. That's my kind of standard receptor because I think we know, we understand how it works so well that it's just a very useful system to profile things against. Um, and, and I use that as a positive control for me, if I develop a new system. I'd say, uh, yeah, the cannabinoids currently are my favorite GPCR. So we, we're, yeah, I was saying we're, we're trying to study biosignaling and um, and so we've we've set up uh, a number of different systems in order to do that effectively. So we have obviously effector coupling from the mini G. We have effector coupling from beta arresting. Um, we're trying to set up some uh, other assays. So these are the signaling based assays, but we're also trying to set up binding assays, which also incorporate the effector proteins as well. And and that's proved to be very interesting. So I wouldn't say I was a huge believer in bias before I started, <laughs> apart from maybe that H4 story I told you about, but I'm, I've now seen it firsthand. And I've seen it in not just on CB receptors, but I've also seen it um, at the beta-2 receptor. So I'm starting to think that, yes, it's definitely achievable and it's real. Yeah. Um, but again, it's the, I think it is this idea of maybe the precision pharmacology. It's very easy to sort of generate these numbers. But again, maybe 
trying to understand what that bias means actually in terms of sort of a clinic clinical effects of these compounds so i'm pretty certain say with the beta 2 system that some of these compounds potentially that bias that we're observing could could still be could actually be playing an effect um in that clinical response that's been observed for mm. some of these compounds so so that's that's interesting um in terms of cb receptors there's a lot that's not known really in terms of what disease areas to treat so i know roche has um a a um they're hoping to treat uh, macular degeneration and that obviously involves like a local application of a CB2 uh, agonist to the eye. So that's somewhere, again, where maybe, you know, if, if you think about sort of beta 2 agonists and M3 antagonists in the lung, you don't necessarily have to worry so much about the PK then of those molecules. So cause it would have been local application. So yeah. I, th I think one of the things that's cloud in the field as well has been... Um, probably the lack of selectivity of the, the compounds. So we, we find having profiled them in various assays that they, they do tend to hit CB1 receptors as well as CB2 receptors. And occasionally you see some weird effects like um, things that are known to be inverse agonists at CB2. They can also be agonists at CB1. So I would imagine that a lot of the animal work as well I know I'm talking to uh, Uwe Grether at uh, Roche, the guy who heads that, those programs. He, he often tells me that the, the pharmacology in the, the different animal species can be very different. So again, you can get antagonists in one um, species, but agonists in another. And obviously that's complicating the preclinical work. Yeah, and as I say, that first generation of compounds that's out there is probably just just probably not sufficiently selective enough. So I think they've gone back and Roche have had a program for many years, so they've been trying to develop more selective agents. So it's probably now is the right time really for where we maybe see an advancement in that field. Um, I know there, there are this debate about mainly CB1s found in the brain people have started to maybe consider that CB2 receptors can also be upregulated in certain conditions in the brain. So I think um, Alzheimer's disease, potentially, it might have a role in the formation of the plaques. And there's some suggestions that it might have um, effects in a sort of reward-based uh, situation. So, you know, in terms of like drug addiction. So it's I think it could be still in a quite an exciting area to be to be working in. I think it's very tricky because I, I do believe that there is bias. There's biased molecules, but I think context matters. And if you have the receptor expressed in different tissues, then context changes. And yeah. add on top of that a disease state, and then context just gets messed up more than more than a physiological context so I think it's it's very very difficult and you have to be lucky or you have to have I don't know I think the stars have to be aligned at some point in order to really hit the receptor at the right place at the right time to generate the correct effect yeah. that that you but need to have I like Terry's I mean Terry's definition Terry uh, is very clear isn't it that the drug must um, produce a different active confirmation and yeah. I think that's something that we've, we've got to 
bear in mind. And I think that's why the confirmation screening is potentially so important because you're going to find that out essentially if, if, yep. if that drug is, is really acting through a different confirmation. Um, oh, agreed. I was yeah, wondering, uh, and this might be a very naive question. You mentioned measuring binding kinetics and then the K-on rate matters in the example that you had mentioned. How does that translate into signaling bias or does it have an effect on signaling? Just on signaling. I was wondering if, mm. if you have a molecule that takes that binds very quickly or there is a difference between different molecules when it comes to the K-on. Yeah. Are there any examples in the literature? I can't think of anything that springs to mind, but I would imagine, now this is maybe is a, a bit of a guess, but I, I think with, with sort of the on rate, obviously it means that that molecule is going to, um, when, it, when it leaves the receptor, it's got a very good chance of going back on the receptor. So you would imagine the drugs that with a very high K-on values, they may get internalized with the receptors potentially because it's often related to the lipophilicity of the compounds. So when we talk about this compartmentalized signaling, probably the drugs that um, are going into the cells, th this could be some of the drugs with the very high um, on rates. So I, when I was looking at spiperone binding, this was quite interesting. So we, we were labeling the receptors with a fluorescent spiperone. And you could only dissociate half of that molecule on the live cells afterwards because essentially it would it would get taken up into the cells and taken into compartments where your antagonist could then no longer reach that. So I think that again, this that that sort of in the lung, the on rate is very important. So I think that will what gives you the duration of action. So again, the on rates relate to lipophilicity. And, and, and so it means that that drug is going to hang around in the lungs and um, this effect of rebinding is going to occur uh, quite readily. So there was always this phenomenon of sort of reassertion where you could, uh, you could um, essentially um, apply like an antagonist, but then if you washed it away, the agonist would remain and it would then reactivate the receptor long after you got rid of the antagonist. So... Again, I think this sort of, yeah, the on rate can have a, a tremendous effect on, on, on the pharmacology of your drugs. Phenomenal. Um, I'm, I also ask this from everyone and I'm wondering, well, I think the answer is always yes, but do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? Well, <laughs> no, I do, I do. I mean, I think, I think it is interesting. I mean, they are still probably the most widely drug target, aren't they? So, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in orphan receptors. So we, we again, from this idea that um, we could solubilize orphan receptors, really, maybe start looking, again, at Dell libraries. So, again, we, we've, we've been thinking about this too, obviously. Um, we, we're, quite, we're quite geared now at, at, at solubilizing receptors. Uh, we do have some Dell libraries in the freezer, and uh, this is something that we we're looking to explore next, really. And and I think, yeah, just just this idea that you can have all these molecules in the same test tube, and um, you know, you don't 
you don't you need very small concentrations of these things actually so there's very few copies that are actually in these libraries but then obviously once they stick to your receptor you can wash away all the free and you're just left with these compounds essentially that bind to your target and then you use the dna um uh, tags to then uncover what that molecule is i mean it's fascinating and I, i'm sure that this again is is going to be quite revolutionary for gpcrs and i think again that's something that bob lefkowitz was talking about again in his in his nature interview and and um and uh, yeah i think i think yeah the idea again that this will pull out sort of allosteric modulators as well it's, I think that's fascinating. And whether or not allosteric modulators will make good drugs, I think this is the this is the key question now. I mean, they tend to be quite low affinity, or, or a lot of the ones that okay. I've studied are. So, like, actually, the probably the developability of those molecules is actually quite difficult. I think, but you know, it's another challenge, isn't it? I guess for GPCR pharmacology, but exactly. <laughs> more work for many more postdoc students, professors, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and people in uh, industry as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've, I've heard that sort of drugging receptors now is not the problem. So finding molecules that bind your receptor is no longer the problem. Finding drugs that activate your receptor is not the problem. But actually, what's the, the problem is actually is finding out what those receptors actually do so i think yeah. that's probably the problem with most of the orphan receptors and that we just don't really know exactly. what they do and i was thinking about this in terms of like clinical trials like should we be running sort of like more clinical trials but on smaller groups so once you've got a molecule really trying to find out where what, what you know which disease is that molecule actually best in because I, I imagine there's been plenty of molecules developed throughout the years that started off with an indication, but that's not the indication that they've eventually ended up in. Is it? It's it's you know. So it's I think I think there's always value in discovering a good molecule for a GPCR. Maybe again the kinetics is something again that people should keep looking at because that's always helped us differentiate molecules. So although your molecule fails, if it's got the wrong kinetics, then maybe that could be one of the explanations why you're not getting the effect in the disease model that you might predict. Yeah. I don't think many people are really studying the kinetics. People are still just studying uh, selectivity based on affinity. Probably. And I'm wondering how, how many times people actually do binding as a first step into understanding the molecule other than keeping the binding assay as a secondary assay and doing regular, what I would call regular endpoint assays and then saying, oh, well, you it generates this much cyclic AMP. Let's see how much binding, how does it bind? But the kinetic aspect of both assays is not being taken into consideration that many times. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And there are some fascinating companies out there actually now aren't there, that actually try and study this whole thing in combination and, and from yeah. functional data, they'll try and predict the kinetics of binding. Yeah. It's obviously um, quite much, fascinating. Much, much more to do. You mentioned uh, the Dell, well, the library, the DNA encoded library, and also the, the ability to purify receptors, not necessarily with um, orphan receptors, but with 
receptors that are known if you were to stabilize a receptor in a specific conformation and then use it to screen to increase the possibility of getting molecules that are, mm. you know, agonist, antagonist, or, or... Yeah, no, that's a brilliant idea. And, and you know, it's something, again, that we, we, we hope that we're going to be able to do with these uh, different effector proteins. So uh, that's something we haven't yet been able to test, whether or not in the solubilized state, whether the effector proteins are still um, able to, to uh, bind. Although one of the PhD students actually has, I think she actually she has shown that. <laughs> so she has been looking at um, mini G binding in, in the presence of uh, solubilized receptors. And that, that assay does still work, yeah. So that's, that's something, I think that's some bioarchives actually. So, but that, the, this is, I mean, I think it's a fascinating area. Um, again, I haven't purified any proteins myself yet. That's obviously something Dimitri is, again, a specialist in. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's just fasc- fascinating, really, to, to see what can be done now um, in a test tube. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. Especially if you can translate the test tube into a plate to make it faster and, and more high throughput. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) so I think we're trying, I mean, this is something I'm really interested in. So I'm always trying to miniaturize the assays and make them higher throughput because of my background. It just seems natural thing to do. So (laughs) obviously obviously it saves a lot of money as well. So if you can miniaturize things. And that was really the idea behind the membrane-based biosensor was just to try and reduce the cost, reduce reduce the the sort of the variability as well and yeah. just reduce the amount of tissue culture if you can. So I, I'm all, always trying to, you know, if I can get something out of the freezer, which is often what we do for binding assays, then that, that just saves you so much time. So. Yes. yes, it allows you to, to have a life of your own and not be uh, a slave to your cells <laughs> growing. Um, yeah. I, I, do, I do remember my time in the lab being really enslaved by the hex cells if, if they grew faster yeah. then you had to be in the lab sooner to run the assay if they didn't grow then you didn't have enough cells to run the assay and it was all all the time this constant fluctuation yeah i mean i struggle sometimes with this myself now so we we, we <laughs> have some uh, some signaling assays that are currently running and um, this is the only way the assays can be done so yes yes but, of course of course we'll respect but, the cells but still can be really convenient it's good it is good i mean i yeah i mean i think this this period of my career is, is this this sort of work-life balance i mean i think this is an interesting sort of point you draw on actually and something yeah. the demands maybe in academia are probably just as high as they are in um in in industry. in industry, if not higher in some ways, because you're you're you know you're really struggling for your next sort of grant opportunities. And yeah. In order to yeah. do that, you've got to keep generating useful data. So yeah, yeah. If we if we were talking, I don't know if you'll get onto this, but some advice for younger scientists yeah. would be um, yeah, really to yeah, make sure that. Um, yeah, make sure that you get a good mentor as well and, and just yeah just really really sort of yeah look look to sort of um get advice really on that sort of what the, the work-life balance really um because it's something maybe your, your immediate boss can't give you so you you really do need maybe someone on the outside um, yeah. just to give you that that 
that little bit of advice on how to balance um, your role in academia. It's not something that I have, but I think that's something that would have been quite useful um, in my career. Maybe it's not something most people, I think maybe more the younger people are seeking those out because it's it's a program now that the universities are trying to put in place early on in their careers. And often the PhD students can either act as mentors or they'll be mentors for the, for the um, uh, PhD students themselves. No, I think I think it's really it's really important to be able to have someone to talk to who's not directly involved in your career mm. because then that person can offer you perspective. Yeah. And and then there is also the separation of interest as well. And the yeah. the men, the mentor who is not necessarily directly involved in your research can can be object a little bit more objective I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Any other advice for a young scientists? Because you you led us into the inspiring Sorry, young yeah. scientists. No, no, that's perfect. That's exactly where I was going. Um, so, yeah. So I think I think it's important to keep. So what? So one of the things about my early career, my early career was um, I was given a project actually to work on by myself at the foundation. So this this was this was something that. Um, I don't necessarily think I've been seeking out, but maybe Sir James had seen some enthusiasm in me. He thought, well, there isn't really enough hands to run this project, so we'll give it to David to do. So <laughs> I ran this, this program against the Rage Receptor. And um, so it's the Receptor for Advanced Glycation End Products. It's not a GPCR. And, and actually, this was quite a problematic project. So I initially, I'd started with like, uh, um, I've read, I've read up on the literature, but then I chose to go down a certain path to attack the problem. And so I developed these ELISA assays and I was getting beautiful standard curves, but I couldn't get any stimulation with any of these ligands that I was trying. And so, so it turned out that actually the cell line that I'd chosen didn't have the receptor that, um, uh, so, so it didn't have the receptor for the positive control. So, so my positive control never worked. So, so I was you, at that point. You're starting to think, well, is it me, or is it the system? So, I think I've really understood the, the importance of positive and negative controls. I think this is quite important for young scientists. So, yeah. you, but failure—that was probably. I mean, I failed many times in that project, but I learned so much in that project. I learned an absolute ton. Looking back, I learned how to grow all the different cell lines because I was just like moving between different systems. I, I read so much literature. In the end, it turned out that our problem was actually we were keeping these materials too sterile. So this like receptor, um, uh, yeah, basically a lot of the, 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 the literature was false, basically. It was all down to endotoxin contamination and it was binding to these toll receptors on the, the cell. And yeah, so I I, um, I learned a hell of a lot during that period, actually. So failure could be a really good thing, I think, um, as long as you're resilient and you can keep going. And and, and I think, yeah, you know, if you do attack a problem, attack it from many different ways, because it's like rolling a dice. Like, you will get lucky, because, you know, just by chance, one of the paths you take will lead to something positive. Whereas I think if you attack a problem from just one angle, 
if, if you're unlucky, you will get quite disheartened quite quickly. So always attack a problem from multiple angles. And that's something I always do now. I always have different ways of attacking a, a science problem. Um, other bits of advice? Yeah, read as much as you can, basically. So the more you read, the more interested you'll become in the subject in general. So the more I, I read, I'd say I, I, up until my, my, my 30s, about my early 30s, I, I, I didn't read as much as I should have done. And it was only at that point that I started to 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 really take a, a, a greater interest in the subject GPCRs as a whole, and I think that's something that um, you know you you should do early on. So when I did my PhD, that was a, then a, a, I found that quite well relatively simple to to sort of sit down there and read the, the literature, and it was a real sort of luxury in many ways at that point because you have that time in that initial phase and that's something all PhD students should be doing now if they're just starting is really uh, really diving into the literature and planning ahead essentially for what what you hope to achieve based on the literature and how you're going to do it so, yeah no I like that and I think one, one thing I'd like to add is um, talk to people and figure yeah. out you know have have the conversations I mean, working with the cell line that doesn't have the receptor is sub it's it's the most basic error. And every we've I've been there and I've <laughs> had colleagues who've been trying to um, measure the cell surface expression of a protein only to realize that the DNA didn't have the, the transmembrane domain in it. So the protein was expressed, but it got secreted. And every time they were getting ready to, to do a flow staining, they would just flush out the the protein in the in the cell culture media and having the conversation with someone well actually two two types of people someone who knows nothing about your project because then they can ask the the most naive questions and make you think yeah. and the other thing is someone who is very good and and is very knowledgeable around that project because then again they can guide you to the right paper to the right people and yeah. and that 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 helps concentrate the chances of success. Yeah, it's very important, thinking about that, it's very important to understand every component of your system. So often you inherit an assay sometimes, don't you? If you don't actually understand all the components and what they're there for, yeah. that can be quite problematic for you. <laughs> if, you're, yes. if you're looking at something like, I remember studying S1P receptors and I hadn't, I didn't have any sodium or vanadate in there to prevent this thing from being broken down mm -hmm. and you know I couldn't quite reproduce the results of the person that had been working on it prior so you know it's 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 really important the fine details I mean I am yeah. quite a details oriented person but yeah really understanding everything that's inside your your, your protocol agreed David last question top three aha moments that you had as a scientist and that shaped your trajectory. Okay, so I was thinking about this, and one of the my, my sort of early remembers memories of sitting in meetings at the James Black Foundation. So you often like hear a really complicated story from someone being presented, and, and, and you'd be like, they they they'd come up with some sort of question, like how do, how do I solve this problem? And obviously, you've heard this very complex story. And you're thinking of the most complex solutions. And I always remember like Sir James, he would just calmly come out with like the most 
simple sort of question. It would be the most simple solution that you'd ever heard of. And you'd be like, how did you even think of that? It would, it would always be, I, I would just, I would just, yeah, I would, I would almost be sat there thinking, how do I think like that? So I think, yeah, again, just thinking the most simple ideas are often the best. It doesn't have to be like a complicated idea, does yeah. it really? And so that's something that I, I learn. I always, if I think about a problem now, I'll always try and look for the simplest um, idea really to, to attack the problem. Um, another aha moment. I suppose the, the rebinding as part of my PhD and, the, and just the whole, the whole story around the kinetics yeah. of binding really. I mean, that, that again was for me was a, was a huge moment just to realize wow you can actually tell so much more about these molecules so i remember when I, again when i was at the foundation we were observing effects of these these competitor compounds and they would like suppress uh, the maximal responses of the tissues mm. and retrospectively I, I i don't think we ever really discussed this but it was sort of seen that these compounds were in some way inferior because they weren't producing like uh, um, uh, sort of almost yeah competitive or what you would expect of a competitive antagonist you were getting the rightward shift you were getting suppression of the maximum response so they, they sort of painted these as being inferior when in fact I actually think maybe looking back now now I understand what was happening that they actually they were probably the superior compounds so I think that was another sort of eureka moment and I don't know a third one. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously you, you, you must always look to sort of um, keep reinventing yourself, really, and I think that's quite important. So you should always be looking to study new technologies and uh, just stay up to date on various topics. So I think studying Fret and Brett is obviously that's going to extend my career, hopefully. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's yeah, just a, a good advice in general, really. And I think that's that's a theme that followed you throughout your career is really spending time and learning different technologies, different techniques, while staying with pharmacology and GPCRs. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I. I have worked a little bit on a non-GPCR, some non-GPCR projects just recently for the, for mm -hmm. the company Z7 Bio, which is a small CRO that we've just started. Mm -hmm. And again, actually, these systems, the, the receptors do behave quite similarly. So I think people should be scared of shifting away from GPCR. So there's a, there's, um, a lot of work being done here in Nottingham on um, RTKs yeah. and... Um, and a lot of that work's been done by uh, Laura Kilpatrick uh, in conjunction with uh, Steve Steve Hill's group. And again, th th those receptors, you can you can do a lot of good pharmacology there. And they've they've developed some really interesting uh, binding assays for looking at interleukin binding um, on those receptors. And yeah, I think I think again, they they're, they're all. They're all quite similar, really, receptors, I think, in general. 
So I, th I think we should be scared of moving away from GPCRs into sort of related areas. They are membrane bank targets. Yeah, yeah. But then GPCRs are the best and everybody should be working on GPCRs. Well, it should be, yeah. I mean, I, I do agree. I do agree. You could have another podcast though. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, I've been I've been trying to uh, to talk to people who work on ion channels with the idea of creating doctor channel, but I don't know enough about about that. But maybe we should we should think about Doctor RTK. Yeah, it sounds cool, doesn't it? I think, so <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. I think I think there are. I know some good ion channel pharmacology. If you want to get some on the program, there are some really good ones. Um, That'd be great. South of, uh, <laughs> South, working at Sussex University, actually, you've moved from Novartis. They could probably yeah. got some good stories to tell you about some of the drugs that they're developing for that, certain conditions in the lung. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. We we might need. Yeah, I might I might need to to concede the host part to someone <laughs> who actually understands ion channels. But I I think I think the the other the other membrane protein communities. Uh, would would benefit from having a podcast yeah, and, and a platform like Dr. GPCR for their own. Well, if anyone's listening, uh, if you <laughs> want to, we're happy to help uh, set up the Dr. RTK podcast and platform <laughs> or Dr. Channel uh, podcast and platform. I think we've we've had three beautiful years of experience with hopefully many more to come. And um I think it's it's absolutely worth having those conversations, and then we can have a panel with all these experts <laughs> on membrane proteins and try and figure out which one is which one is the best. <laughs> GPCRs, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> David, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank and, you very much. Uh, Still, I'm absolutely delighted to have been on the show, and and I've I've watched. I've watched a number of these um, and, and I've, I've heard so much from colleagues that I've been around the world with that I've, I've toured, yeah, I've toured with Terry a little bit and uh, Sam Hall is another person you probably mm -hmm. know quite well and yep. they also have very nice things about Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to thank our guest, we also want to take, say thank you to our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Montserrat, Ivana, Andreina, Balint, and Julia. A huge thank you to our ecosystem partners as well, Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. You can connect with our partners directly in the ecosystem, so don't forget to join us today. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. With any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us at any time at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.